Canon Entertainment. Throughout our first decade, we've delivered with stars that light up the sky, films that sizzle, action too hot to handle, and drama to burn up the night. Hi, I am Austin Trinick, author of the Canon Film Guide, and you are listening to Play That Rock and Roll. We're charged for excitement and looking forward to another decade of blockbusters. So look to Canon for the future. Canon Entertainment. We're moving forward. And you can check out any time you want. Just call me Joe. And I can play that rock and roll boy. This is not a test. This is Play That Rock and Roll. I'm your host, Joseph K. And like the song at the start says, just call me Joe. Today, we are welcoming back Austin Trunick, the author of Canon Film Guide, Volume 2. Austin was previously a guest on this show back in 2020 when he was promoting his first book, Canon Film Guide, Volume 1. Austin's new book was released in May of this year, and it includes over 300 images and 40 interviews. Within, it's over 1,000 pages. These two books, along with a third volume, which is coming in a couple of years, are about a film company called Canon Films during the years it was owned by two cousins, Menachem Golan and Yoram Globus. Canon Films is one of the most infamous studios in Hollywood history, but what they're most known for is making the movies of Charles Bronson and Chuck Norris in the 1980s, launching the careers of Michael Dudikoff and Jean-Claude Van Damme, and also kickstarting a ninja craze of sorts that was ongoing through the 80s and 90s. Yeah, if you grew up in the 80s or 90s, you probably noticed that ninjas were all over pop culture. And that's largely due to Canon's Ninja Trilogy from the early 80s, and also their later series, American Ninja, that starred Michael Dudikoff. So obviously this is not going to be a music-centric episode, but we do touch on a few classic rock topics. And as I've said before, I believe there's a lot of crossover between fans of the movies made by Canon Films and classic rock. So if you're unfamiliar with this topic, please stay tuned. I'm sure we'll touch on something you enjoy. This new volume focuses on the years 1985 through 1987, which was, in essence, peak Canon. These were the years of Canon's biggest productions. And because of that, this conversation is too big for one podcast. That's right, we're doing a two-parter. And in this first part, we talk about where Canon was as a company in 1985, the trilogy of films it made with horror director Toby Hooper, the American Ninja series that stars Michael Dudikoff, and a largely forgotten little movie called Thunder Alley, which is about a rock band trying to make it in the music industry, which is perfect for this show. And part two of this interview will be posted later this week. If you want to learn more about this book, you can check out canonfilmguide.com, or you can find Austin on social media as the Canon Film Guide on Facebook or at Canon Film Guide on Twitter. So without further ado, here's my new interview with the author of the Canon Film Guide, Volume 2, Austin Trunick. Most of the Canon movies that I watched for um, while I was reading yours, I found on Tubi. And it's just like, you know, free and... Uh, you know, Tubi sort of has that video store kind of feel where everything in the selections are like the same stuff you'd, you'd find in an independent video store back in the day. It's cool. I, I love the Tubi. I mean, beyond it just having a fantastic catalog, I love that it feels disorganized. It has that video <laughs> store vibe because not everything's where it belongs, I feel, but <laughs> that's how you find some of the most fun stuff. Yes. Well, yeah, absolutely. 100%. It does it. Yeah. It has a nice low rent feel, which is where I feel welcome. <laughs> All right. Very good. Well, let's, uh, let's dive into your book here. Uh, so this new edition volume two covers the years from 1985 to 1987. Over a thousand pages, you cover over 50 movies and you've got all kinds of interviews. How many interviews did you do for this? Oh, I believe there's 40 in that one. Uh, give or take a, a couple. 
My um, goodness, that is great. <laughs> can you can you talk about some of the people that you interviewed for it? Well, I and one of my bucket list interviews I I got for that book was Michael Dudikoff, who I somebody who as a kid spent you know I don't know how many days in my backyard with a stick waving around <laughs> pretending I was Joe Armstrong to finally get the call back from Michael Dudikoff one day. My wife, she, she enjoys, she loves his movies too. That's, we both enjoy the American Ninja movies together, but it was one of those things I'm like, it's Michael Dudikoff, like get, get the kids out of here. I got to go run downstairs. And talk. <laughs> so it's, I was just, it was a definite fanboy moment there, but yeah, it was a great interview. I mean, he's just super, super nice guy. That's something that's always nice to learn too. <laughs> and when, when, uh, somebody you've always had on a pedestal just ends up being just a super awesome general, like human being in general. Oh, it's a relief, right? Yeah. Like, Oh, yeah. thank God he's not a douchebag. Right. <laughs> right. 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 And yeah, just no, the total opposite of that. He was as nice as could be. There were some fun, other fun ones, really great ones. People I didn't expect to get um, okay. the, the downside of the, I mean, the pandemic, everything that happened, but and, and especially when it comes to the movie industry, movies shutting down TV is yeah. there were people who I think would be too busy filming stuff to have to have talked to me. Um, yeah. <laughs> but some of that I was really surprised to get. But also I'm trying to think, like what have some other really exciting interviews. One was Wings Hauser. That's another person I never expected to talk about. And if you pick up this book and I would I would not I would I I would be okay if anybody wanted to skip to just the Wingshauser interview because that's some of the juiciest stuff in the book. Yeah, that's fun, a good one. Fun freewheeling interview in there, and that was one that the conversation was longer. I couldn't use all of it because not all of it pertained to canon, but just some of the most fun I've had talking to to anybody. But Michael Berryman's in there. We have Bill Mosley and Bill Johnson both talking about Texas Chainsaw Massacre too, which. They both mm. have great stories in there. Um, yep. Bill Mosley is somebody who is incredibly smart. He's had went Ivy League education as a journalism major. Incredibly smart guy. The smartest guy you to ever become famous for playing a character that picks at his head with a <laughs> with a clothes hanger and eats it. Yeah. And he, I mean, from you know, from all the other Rob Zombie movies, all the horror movies he's done, it be. <laughs> You never, you never expect to like this, this to be one of the smartest people that you'll, you'll have. Oh, ever sure. Yeah. With. And, yeah. Just some really cool people. This was, there, there are a lot of interviews in there and I am very fortunate to say that anybody I've, I've talked to for Canon has always been very e eager to discuss those times and also just very uh, fun about it. I think, I think yeah. a lot of people have this attitude that, even if these movies were cheesy or didn't go anywhere or silly in some of these cases that, you know, it, it was a stepping stone in their career. They had yep. fun making it for the most part, or it gave them experiences that they were able to channel into the next phase of what they did. I just want to um, establish a quick refresher for those who don't know. Um, so, Canon Films was an independent film company that was owned in the 80s and early 90s by these two cousins we mentioned, Menachem Golan and Yoram Globus. They took over in the early 80s and they made a series of uh, smaller budget films with a couple of surprise hits like Missing in Action with Chuck Norris and Breakin', which is the movie about breakdancing. And it seemed that like uh, at the end of your first volume, which chronicles 1980-1984, that Canon was kind of on the upswing and, and they were, you know, becoming more of a player in Hollywood. This book opens in 1985, covers through 1987. Can you sort of set the stage of where Canon was as a company in 1985 and what were their goals in this stretch that you covered? Well, as you mentioned, Yoram Globus and Menachem Golan bought basically this failed independent production and distribution company based out of New York. And this was their foothold into Hollywood. They had been successful in Israel and they've been successful around the world selling not only Israeli movies, but a lot of European, a lot of exploitation films that they picked up and sent all over to parts of the globe where they hadn't been fully exploited yet. They got to Hollywood 
And they start out in the, what the first book covers, mostly making the same sort of exploitation movies that the company had made before they got there. That's when you have these slashers, the uh, erotic films, sex comedies, things like right. that. But then they kind of stumbled on some genuine hits. You have your Death Wish 2, which is the one big one, and then Missing in Action and Breakin', which those two movies were their most successful, the most the, the, the b- biggest money makers they had in their entire career. And those came really at the end of 84. So it's this company that's on the rise. At the same time, at the end of 18, 1984, they had deals in place. They had just made a movie with Cassavetes. They were working on movies with Robert Altman. Um, they had signed Toby Hooper to a deal. Uh, Franco Zeffirelli. All these big, very prestigious names, I would guess. Yeah. But because of those two things, that success they had with some box office success, and then talent, whether it is your stars that have their vanity projects or directors that have kind of hit a bump in their career and are having a hard time getting things made or looking to make projects that maybe other studios have said no to, they sort of get get it in their ear that Canon's a place that's willing to do this. If you can do it cheaper than you plan, if you can do it on less money, Canon will generally leave you alone as far as these auteurs went. And so you hit this period of time where Canon is probably at their the peak of their respect in 1985 going into 1986. And people, I want to say respect, probably not critical because the critics still tore them apart and the right. way their bread and butter was still was, was still Chuck Norris and Charles Bronson movies at this time, ninja movies, breakdancing movies. So if critics weren't taking him seriously, at least within the industry, some people, at least part of the industry was taking him seriously. This also corresponded to investors, um, investors, um, distributors who are buying their movies because they start to see that the product is getting a little better. You're getting bigger names. So they're paying more in advance so Canon is getting more money that they can channel in the bud, uh, channel in the budgets because you know they're selling based on the names and the premises and things like that. But also banks, banks are giving them money. Banks will extend them credit because Canon had a history of they'd take a Chuck Norris movie, for example. They would go sell the cable rights, the video rights, the rights to uh you know, G- Germany, Spain, Italy, uh, Japan, everywhere. Like, and it'd be $10 million. I'm just throwing out a ballpark number here. If they made $10 million then, before the movie even went in front of a camera, they would spend $5 million on the film and they'd already have made a profit. So wow. in a lot of those cases, it didn't matter if it came out and played in theaters for a week and a half and didn't make anything because that's not where Canon really made their money. But banks were seeing that that was a good way to, they would always get their money back by loaning it to Canon at that point. So Canon also had a lot of money. So they began to spend more money. So if I, if I return all the way back here to your question, this 85, 86, 87 is Canon's sort of peak Canon, but also Canon at their most ambitious, not just in terms of, how many movies they were making they this is when they were again that that book is a thousand pages and it only covers three years mm-hmm. um, so many so many movies in there but ambitious in terms of what they were spending and big budgets you get mm-hmm. their biggest budget films with over the top mass universe uh, life force the toby hooper That's movies great. and also just inter- ambitious in terms of the talent they get. They were signing deals with Sylvester Stallone and Faye Dunaway, Dustin Hoffman, uh, signing Bronson and Norris to these long 1940s style Hollywood studio contracts that nobody else was doing, but Canon was. Canon could announce an eight picture deal with you know, 64 year old Charles Bronson. And that was that was what they did. They had this money to spend, but it came back to bite them. But that's right. <laughs> eighty-five to eighty-seven reaches sort of. If this is a roller coaster, the first book is them getting to the top, and this is eighty, eighty-six. It's peaking, and then eighty-seven is where it starts going fast. <laughs> it's still thrilling, but yep. <laughs> by the time it gets to volume three, it's just oh, 
just downhill as fast as, <laughs> as fast as yeah <laughs> great okay well that's good um yeah you know just for those watching on YouTube, so you covered four years in Volume 1, and it is this thick. And you covered three years in Volume 2, and it is this thick. <laughs> I mean, that that says it all as far as volume uh, that they were producing. So let's talk about some of these movies. Um, one of the guys you mentioned that it was a big deal that they signed to a three-picture deal was Toby Hooper. And he did three movies for them. He did Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, a remake of Invaders from Mars, and uh, Life Force. Let's start with Life Force. In the tale of Haley's Comet, there's something wrong. Something ancient. Something evil. Jesus. Houston, we have a problem. Something's happening to me. Hungry. That's brought to Earth. Life Force. Close your eyes. Visited you how? In my mind. Let it go! It's already spreading. You didn't stop it, it's too late. With me. Life Force. The terror has just begun. I, I had a couple of questions about it, but I'm just going to throw them all out because it really comes down to this. What the fuck is this movie? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, if you want to believe Canon's advertising, it is the sci-fi event of the 1980s. One of two yeah. movies that they... they described that way they tried that tagline oh. over again for mass universe in some of their <laughs> ads because clearly life force was not the sci-fi event maybe this one will be right but yeah it is a movie that canon had been trying to make for actually quite a while for as long as galan was there when they bought the company in 1979 one of the first sets of ads that they put out because that's the first thing they did, then that's something they continue right. to do, buy out these giant sections of the trade magazines, either Variety or Hollywood Reporter, some of the foreign magazines. But Life Force was in there. But in that point, it was just Space Vampires, which is what it was called in a lot of the world. It's a better oh, title okay. for it. <laughs> but it was based on, by, based on an awful by Colin Wilson, and originally it was going to star Klaus Kinski, which... I would have loved to see like a 1979 version of Space Vampires with Klaus Kinsey. There's a there's another parallel universe out there where that version of the movie exists, and it was made for one and a half million dollars in right. Germany or something. <laughs> it would be a very loud movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but it's a movie that they spent years advertising. In I look at. I have a lot of these magazines around in my office and it's in the 1980 catalog, the 81 catalog, the 82 catalog. Finally, Hooper came off of Poltergeist, kind of riding, riding high on a very successful yep. film and Cannon approached him and he met with Galan and he had said, you know, I want to get you in. I want to bring you into the Cannon family. I want you to direct Space Vampires. So he, Galan gave him this like, very bent up, beat up paperback and gave it to Toby Hooper. He's like, what do you want to do? What is your, what is your project? And Toby Hooper threw at him a remake of Invaders from Mars, which mm. was a science fiction movie. So a lot of these directors, a lot of these horror directors kind of made these tribute films. Um, oh, yeah. And I think of John Carpenter with The Thing. Like The Thing is a movie that scared him as a kid and he got to remake it. That was kind of Toby's. <laughs> yeah, uh, 50s sci-fi sci movie he wanted to make and of course Menachem loved Invaders from Mars I'm sure he saw every movie that played in Israel the, the, in, the, in the 50s knew instantly and he said oh, let's, let's do it three picture deal and Toby ended up reading Space Vampires I think like after right after that meeting and because the deal was put together fast and he yeah. liked the book and he had ideas for it and it was matched his sensitive sensibilities so the three-picture deal became 
space vampires, soon to become life force, um, invaders from Mars. And the third one was going to be Spider-Man. Because <laughs> Toby oh. Hooper had, uh, Canon had just acquired Spider-Man, the rights to Spider-Man from Marvel. So Toby Hooper was going to make Spider-Man. We almost lived in a universe where we got a Sam Raimi and a Toby Hooper Spider-Man, which is yeah, <laughs> pretty amazing. Wasn't there wasn't there a Spider-Man script uh, by James Cameron that was floating around at some point too, like yeah, in the late eighties? Yeah, that came around a little later um, because Cameron was interested. But the, Spider-Man was a project. It was one of those canon projects that spent years being developed. I think everybody involved with canon was attached to it at one point or another. There's several different scripts that went through. Monokamoni bought it from bought it from Marvel. Did not know who Spider-Man was. He thought it yeah. was. Like a Teen Wolf type character, somebody who turned into an actual eight-legged spider. Um, that would have been a trip. That would have been amazing. Directed by Toby Hooper, with right. by Dan O'Bannon. That would have been would have been incredible. Again, parallel universe somewhere. Yep. Somebody got that version of Spider-Man, and the Marvel, the history of Marvel was changed, changed forever from that point in that universe. But yes, yeah, so those were going to be the three movies. Um, part of the deal too, there was also a little ass part clause, I guess, in there. I don't, not a person who looks at a lot of Hollywood contracts, <laughs> but the one of it, it was in there is that they were going to have the rights to do a Texas Chainsaw remake. Toby was not going to direct it. Toby did not want to direct Texas Two at first. He was going to produce and find a new young director to kind of shepherd through it. But things that Canon never really worked out what what ended up happening is canon had spent years selling the sequel as coming out in august 86 and they got to about february of 86 and they're like oh we better make this himself (laughs) so yeah but life force was the first movie and it's 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 got a dream team a sci-fi sort of dream team of the 80s yeah really and 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 it shows because the effects are very impressive i think it's well directed like i one thing i really liked about the film was uh it's pacing like that that opening scene with how quickly they get the astronauts into the spaceship and you know back to earth like any other movie that's like a 45 minute ordeal but it was like edited very well so i i was enjoying it but when i got to the end of the movie i just kept thinking like what what the fuck did i just watch (laughs) it was a movie yeah you have John Dykstra on the okay. special effects. You have Nick Maley designing all the monsters and creatures, all the makeup effects and all the animatronics who designed, I mean, he worked on Yoda. He worked on Star Wars and Empire, designed the Cantina band in Star Wars. Oh, so cool. you had Dan, Dan O'Bannon of Alien yep. fame and Dark Star writing the movie. You, and you have Henry Mancini doing the score. Like yeah. doing the sweeping. And it's it's a movie where every, everything is done in camera. They they built a giant like they uh, they used a giant miniature set of london for a lot of these things they a lot of these creatures that they built there's a very famously a creature that sort of sits up on the table and drains yeah. and it beca- it ends up morphing and draining somebody it's this is really wonderful sequence and that is a machine there's an interview in the book with nick maley where he talks about it took 23 puppeteers and three computers just all of them because it's all things that make the hands move and eyes move and face move. And the most complicated animatronic puppet ever used on film. Wow. It was a very expensive movie, but for, and unfortunately it's also a very strange movie. <laughs> right. And <laughs> it was something that one of, one of Toby's regrets in, he did a lot of interviews for, excuse me for invaders from mars and texas 2 is that they let him change the title or he let them change the title he had wanted to call it space vampires i think space vampires kind of a better tonally for what life force is it's him doing this sort of throwback horror almost like a one of the hammer quatermass films oh yeah uh, kind of a tribute to those yeah and Especially with the British cast, that would sort of fit. Right. Yeah, that's it's something that 
if it were called space vampires, you kind of go in there with this attitude that it's it's going to be a little weird. It's going to have a main villain who is a girl who's naked for most of the most of her screen time her the what little screen time she has it's he let them change it and i think because canon thought that they had something that was not so much a big crowd pleaser i think they thought of it more as a like a 2001 a space odyssey or something rather than yeah his, so toby had wanted to call it space vampires it was released as space vampires in a lot of the world but yeah. When they came out and they're like, let's change the life force. So it'll get a different crowd. We'll get a more serious crowd. And he let them do sure. it and he regretted it. But... And you know, it, it initially to some people, Space Vampires might sound like a really dumb title, but Robocop was a big hit. And that, if you if you don't have the context of the movie in hindsight, that's the dumbest title you could you could have for a for you know a film. <laughs> that's so, a fantastic comparison. Yeah. Yeah, well, thank you. Uh yeah, that's what I, I just think of. It's just like, it's Space Vampires sounds dumb to us because that's not what happened. Have you read the book? Do you know what it was that appealed so much to both Menachem and Toby? Like, was, was there a reason that this was the story that they had wanted to make for so long? Um, I've never gotten, I've never read an exact reason why they loved it so much. Yeah. I I do think probably because it's it's a little dirty. <laughs> I'm yeah. sure that was that yeah. was part of the appeal. Um, yeah. There was at least for Menachem. I can't speak for the Toby. I'm sure there there are people that know better than than myself. But at least in terms of Menachem, I think he saw this sort of, sort of an R-rated uh, yeah. sci-fi. You know, and and maybe initially they were. Do you know if they were thinking, well, how, how could we know? But maybe they were thinking uh, that, that they would initially film it on a cheaper budget. And you know, Again, I like, know. I, like I, if they had gotten it out when they orig- originally announced it, I think it would have been about a $1.5 million movie. Sure. Starring Klaus Kinski, directed <laughs> right. by Boaz Davidson. It, w- it would have been something along the lines of Schizoid or New Year's Evil or something like that. I think it okay. became a big movie when when they got Toby Hooper. <laughs> right, right. That makes sense. Yeah. So I I didn't get a chance to see Chainsaw Two uh, when I was uh, watching movies for this interview. I, I had only had time for one of his others, and and I thought Chainsaw Two would be the obvious one. So I zagged while well, others might zig, and I watched Invaders from Mars because I was also, like you said, hoping that it would be sort of a 80s updated version of like the thing or the blob or uh, what oh the fly you know like there's a good there's a good uh, run of 80s remakes of 50s sci-fi movies and i thought this would be um in that class and uh it's my opinion that it is not (laughs) david gardner just woke up to a nightmare in his own backyard but no one will listen No one will believe. I told you, he needs psychiatric help. And soon, no one will be left. Dad? Are you okay, Dad? Fine. Because something strange is happening to the people of Willow Creek. Everything's fine now. And David Gardner is about to find out why. David! I'm gonna find my mom and dad! Films presents Toby Hooper's Invaders from Mars. There's no place on Earth to hide. The effects are great, though. Do you know, was yeah. was Toby happy with the finished product, or was that something that was compromised, um, kind of like uh, Life Force was with the title? Well, Toby, I think it was a product that he could have used more time on, I guess. 
it was something that this this tells you how much canon how much respect canon had for for toby hooper and his vision at the time there's for mars is one of the only examples of a movie going way over schedule way over budget mm. and canon continuing to pour money into it oh Usually. okay so this is a movie that weeks went on they kept going and going and spending more and more on it toby would come and ask for more money and they would give it to him and it was i mean this is this is golden globus they would not do that for many people you had to have your movie you know three days early and a million dollars less than what you were going to spend on it because this is not money that they can keep pouring into things and invaders was an example of the opposite it was a movie that Golden Globus wanted it scarier and scarier. And I know that from talking to Hunter Carson, who played the little boy in it, yeah. that um, it, it is his mother, Karen, Karen Black, actually. So it's a very much a family affair there. Right. But th- one of the notes that they kept getting is Golden Globus wanted, or at least Golden wanted it to be bloodier they wanted to show more of the monsters he liked that stuff he wanted this sort of great horror film and when you've got stan winston doing effects you gotta love that stuff you have to really lean into it but it's a movie that as as the time went on and it cost more and more money their patience and their faith kind of waned you could see where canon was like you're you're bleeding us dry we can't we're not like a studio where we can keep dumping money into it. And they eventually just stopped it. Now. So it's a movie that I don't know if anybody really who was involved was completely happy with it because I don't, I feel like Toby didn't really have a full plan for it. Oh, okay. Unfortunately, uh, yeah. Canon wanted something that they, really, I guess, didn't sign up for. That came to bite them more on Texas Chainsaw 2. Right. <laughs> which right. they sold as a straight sequel. They pre-sold it around the world. You can watch the early trailers because they were showing trailers before the movie was even shot. Talking about the buzz after all the years, the buzz is back. Yeah. The most terrifying movie of all time, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2. Now, after more than a decade of silence, he has come out of hiding. Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2. The buzz is back. Directed by Toby Hooper. And it was not that. Like, Toby ended up in a matter of a few... A few, you know, just... (laughs) months you know they wrote it mostly as they went they cast it as they were going they they threw this movie together really really quick and they made it almost a parody it's pretty like texas 2 is a parody of text the original texas chainsaw massacre and, yeah and that made going on globus furious <laughs> right that's but not it, it, what there's they... been appreciation appreciation for that movie has come around in mm-hmm. later years but it was not well liked at the time right mm-hmm. right so Toby, yeah, and because of that movie, Toby wasn't even really around to cut Invaders because he had oh, to jump. So he had to jump ship to go over to, he couldn't finish it. <laughs> so Canon finished it themselves and put it out there because Toby was just working around the clock to make Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, which already had a really state. I already had trailers playing in theaters <laughs> and it wasn't even written yet. So yeah. <laughs> that's wild invaders from mars is an interesting movie it's it is definitely i think kind of the 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 middle i mean the middle child the one that sticks out out of those two because i i I like both life force and texas two more but yeah it's it's a movie that's too scary to be a kid's movie yes but not scary enough to be a horror like a straight up like terrifying like sci-fi horror film yeah, there's some ideas there. Like, they're, like the, the, the creature effects are fantastic. And uh, this I have to give you props for. In your chapter for Invaders from Mars, you interviewed, is that James Karen? Yes. Yeah, uh, who is steals the show in Return of the Living Dead. 
Yeah, these things don't leak, do they? Leak? Hell no. These things were made by the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. <laughs> oh, fuck! <laughs> You know, he that's a great character actor. Dare I even mention in the same breath as maybe John P. Ryan, who we'll talk about later. <laughs> but uh, can you talk about, uh, you know, how, how you found that guy and how that conversation went? Yeah, James, I mean, he was 93 years old, I believe, when wow. when I interviewed him. He, someone I, I loved from Return of the Living Dead, as you oh, yeah. mentioned. Because... He's great in both of those movies, and he's in Poltergeist. He has a very memorable role. Oh, that's right. Role. Uh, yes. But that that's a, how he ended up in in Invaders, from knowing Toby from that. But yeah, he's somebody who, again, there's, there's a few of these people they keep, I mean, they're passing away very fast now, these people who yeah. worked in the golden age of Hollywood um, that have these stories where, He's somebody who went into acting and he put his career on hold to go fight in World War II. And that's just an amazing being able to talk about that, being able to talk about making movies in the 50s and 60s and everything he's done in the career. Under, uh, being an understudy in the, in the Streetcar Named Desire when Brando was doing wow. it on Broadway. It's, so he's somebody I was so grateful. And it's an interview that I did a long time ago. I, that was one of the very earliest interviews I did for this book. And I'm grateful I did because he ended up passing away just short few months afterwards. This was yeah. original. I think we talked about this last time, but this early on before, before this became this kind of unwieldy, like giant three book project, it was a, even after like reading Mike McPadden's books and being very inspired, I still thought one volume, I'm just going to tell the stories of like my 50 favorite canon movies. Oh, right. Or right, like the 50 right. most interesting. So invaders. So I started doing interviews back then. So some of those interviews that are in this second book are from 2015, 2016. Sure. That's James Karen. And I'm glad I, I got him when I did. And I, I went after him because I knew him from Return of the Living Dead and he's somebody who I'd love from that. And I ended up talking to, there's an interview in the second book with Tom Matthews, who okay. uh, he does the uh, Down Twisted with Albert Pion. And then he's also Prince Charmin in an Alien from LA, which will be a movie in the third volume. But he was, he was the side, he was the buddy in Re Re uh, Return of the Living Dead. Oh, he was the, the you younger go, guy in, in the warehouse, and he ended up doing a lot of Albert Pion movies um, over, the, over the years. But it was one of those ones when I talked to James Karen, and we talked for a long time. You know, this, this is a the interview was one of those two and a half hour long, just oh. wonderful calls. And he, he, I told him, I was like, oh, yeah, and I know you, Tom Matthews. I want to talk to him. He's, oh, Tommy, Tommy, I love Tommy. Like, here, let me go get his phone number. And then, uh, this appears for several minutes. You know, I'm sure he just sat his landline down and wandering off. Finally, he comes back. You still there? You still there? Okay, okay. Call Tommy. This is the number. Tell tell him Jimmy. Tell him Jimmy told you to call. So that interview was like ended up being the next day because I called Tom Matthews. I'm like, hey, James Karen said it'd be cool. I called you. <laughs> so it ended up working out because that ended up being another interviews in this book, and I also have the second half of it for volume three. One. Alien from LA. So at that point, it'll be publishing an interview that's almost five, eight years old, nine years old at the, <laughs> by the time it comes out. But, but yeah, James Karen, Return of the Living Dead, as a, some, that was a staple on the horror shelf as oh, like, absolutely. punk rock zombies. And uh, in, my introduction to Linnea Quigley. And yep. Yeah. It, just a fun, fun movie. <laughs> Do you want to party? Yeah. Great soundtrack. <laughs> Great, such a good soundtrack. I, I I flip between that one and Repo Man for my like favorite okay. like, 80s like punk rock movie like soundtrack. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I could see that for sure too. Yeah, that yeah, that's a a, a great one. Uh, and and the interview comes across so well. He comes across as so likable, and he's got some good insight in that. So yeah, just a credit to you for getting that guy and getting uh. Uh, his story in the pages, especially, you know, because it, it was probably one of his last interviews. I mean, you you did him a bit of a service there by, you know, getting his last words out there. So that's terrific. 
Yeah, I'm just so thrilled I, I, I did get him when I did. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes, yes. And, and and film fans should celebrate that and another great reason to uh, get this new copy of the book. Well, moving on, um, I'm going to ask you about a movie that I bet, I, but I could be wrong, but I bet you have not been asked about while promoting uh, this uh, this book, and if if I'm wrong, uh, just lie to me so I don't uh, feel embarrassed. But uh, you know what show you're on? You're on Play That Rock and Roll. So one of the movies I sought out for this interview was Thunder Alley, <laughs> which I found for free on YouTube in standard definition. <laughs> you got the talent to go places, and I can help you get there. You're good. <laughs> really good. You play the music, I do the talk. I am the singer. You're as good as he is, you proved it. You're hot now, they come to see you, they don't come to see us. Donnie, that's not true. start getting 100 percent i'll tear this sucker up and you can go back to playing high school proms for all i care we're late donnie that's why it wouldn't be a man if it wasn't for me no Just uh, on that note, I, I recently, because I've only ever seen VHS tape or rips of it, and I'm used to it sort of having that kind of like blown out, like yeah. not blown, but faded, yeah. warbly sound. I've never been that impressed. Not just a few weeks ago from the time we're talking now, but I was at the Mahoning Drive-In out in, out in Pennsylvania. There's this amazing mecca for cult movie fans. They show only yeah. 35 millimeter stuff, but... They had shown a reel of, it was actually, it was five reels. It was a two hour super cut of Canon trailers on 35 millimeter. And there was a trailer for Thunder Alley in there. And it was a film print. It was widescreen, the the 35 millimeter, just this beautiful crisp. And like looking at it, I'm like, holy crap. Like the the performance footage. I'm like, this movie actually looked good at one point. I I never expected it. So that's one that... Gosh, if it's sitting in a in a place somewhere, if somebody wants to pick it up and put out like a, a DVD release or a Blu-ray release, that I don't know that that will happen. But yeah. I would just even just love to see a film rent because just that like one and a half minute trailer I saw just really impressed me because I'm used to it looking like a 40 year old VHS tape. Right. <laughs> but yeah, Th- Thunder Alley is. <laughs> <laughs> Mm, it's i mean you know rock and roll you, yes. you know you're the rock and roll expert tell me about the hotbed of the rock and roll creativity that was tucson tucson arizona like that's <laughs> that's where all the bands go to break it right yeah yeah where, that's where um, people first heard of led zeppelin and that was it you know there's been a lot of talk about like southern california and like you know uh, Cleveland and all these, you know, of course, New York and all these famous cities for rock and roll. But no, it's all false. It was the epicenter was Tucson, Arizona. <laughs> for those watching on YouTube, we can see that awesome missing in action to poster behind you. So while we're here, do us a favor and show us the entirety of your Thunder Alley collection of canon memorabilia. There must be so much. <laughs> Thunder Alley was a very tricky one. We had a VH, I had a VHS tape to scan. I had a, um, I believe in the book, there's a, maybe the British cover, um, VHS cover. And just a one ad, like the ads were all the main actor with the guitar, nothing super interesting. So that was one that actually... I had a lot of trouble cutting down the number of materials to put that I picking and choosing what pictures went with each chapter. That was one where 
it was a little bit of a struggle to actually yeah. find things that were because Thunder Alley there was not it was it was not a huge release. It was one of those ones they kind of rolled around and very you know they show it here and then they pick up the reels and send it to the next city it got a very small sort of piecemeal release but something that i do love about that is anytime canon shot something outside of new york and los angeles and they there were a lot of movies that they shot and sort of you know revenge of the ninja was salt lake city ninja 3 was in phoenix they ended up shooting these things in in atypical places but with that one being in tucson and actually shot the director had based it kind of on his own band that he had been in and a lot of um, it was inspired by i think that i think the band ended up having the same name as his old band that he was in um i can't remember like surgical steel right yeah something like that i'm trying to remember what the but when canon was very good about having their on-site publicists they they hired great people to sort of just go out to the film set and make sure every local news team could be there. Every newspaper had sent somebody at least three or four times to interview every star, interview the people that are the locals that are working. So it's great when you have that, like Tucson's one that you can go through the newspapers and like every day there was an article coming out on when this movie invasion USA shooting in Atlanta, you get every day there's a new article talking about, what they're doing that day and it's as a researcher it's very valuable in particular with thunder alley when there's there's a scene towards the end where it's a sort of a big festival almost environment where they're doing the huge gig and you know will he will he perform won't he will they have to go on like that there's a lot of drama there but they need a lot of extras they need a lot of local people to come out and sort of cheer for these bands all day platform and there was an ad in the paper and in one of the local Tucson papers that was like, we need a thousand extras or like 1500 extras or something crazy like that to spend the entire day. And in typical Canon fashion, the first 100 people to get there will get a hot dog and a soda. (laughs) So not only were these extras unpaid, but they didn't even splurge to get make sure they all got a hot dog and a soda for a full day's work. That's oh, canon, never wow. change. So, all right, let's move on to a property that's a little more familiar and uh, certainly something you're you're more enthusiastic about. Uh, American Ninja: The mission to hijack a U.S. military arsenal. Your destiny, my son, awaits you. The adventure. The Confrontation. The Code. I will honor the Code, Father. The Invasion. Final hour. The deadliest art of the Orient is now in the hands of an American. American Ninja. The chapters on American Ninja are like the biggest chunk of this book. You got a bunch of interviews. You covered all five movies. Um, you know, the first movie stars Michael Dudikoff and Stephen James, who everybody seems to agree is like the most underappreciated guy in 80s action. You know, he was in Delta Force. I, I, I He's in Street Hunter. Like, he's had some movies outside, but, you know, he, he was a guy who, who should have been bigger than he was. Uh, so when you were putting this book together, did you start with the intention of the American Ninja series sort of being the centerpiece of this project, or is that just sort of how things fell together? I would say it fell together that way. I had put writing that one off for a long time because I was intimidated by it. I, (laughs) I have such a, I guess a reverence, but also just a nostalgia for Canon's Ninja movies because those were, I mean, those were the movies that I would rent over and over and over again. I saw the Chuck Norris and Charles Bronson movies when my dad rented them early on. And 
but the ninja movies were the first ones that I got into the whole ninja craze that that happened back then and that uh so yeah I I actually kept punting whenever it came time to like which, what what am I going to work on next what am I going to sit down and write and I kept putting off the American ninjas not that I hadn't seen them and watched them a bunch of times it was just I was too nervous to <laughs> actually oh. do it so but it ended up working out well because it's a big franchise to cover I covered five of them all five of them in the one chapter because in these books, I it, you I, I found that I avoided repetition by lumping franchises together. Oh yeah, know, rather yeah. Than as as a reading experience, it's fantastic that you do that. Oh, thank you're you. Just I, I hope I hope you're getting good feedback <laughs> on that because that's a real positive part of your book. Oh, thank you. But yeah, that's that's what I was hoping for, and yeah. it. So I, I'm not, I'm not just repeating a lot of the same details and things like that, and that chapter grew very large, but just the number of the, the interviews I was able to get people. I was able to talk to Sam Furstenberg and Cedric Sundstrom, who directed the first four Ninja movies, American Ninja movies. Oh yeah. I got, of course, Michael Dudikoff, I mentioned earlier was one of my heroes as a kid. My, <laughs> I wouldn't be writing can I wouldn't be writing these Canon books if yeah. the American Ninja movies hadn't hit me right when they did at that like sweet spot of, like falling in love with movies and action movies in general, but Judy Aronson, um, Mike Stone was somebody who I was really excited to get. I would I tried to get him for the first book to talk about Enter the Ninja because he's the guy who brought ninjas to canon. He's the guy that brought the ideas and introduced them to Shokasugi and kind yeah. of the whole thing going. And he was somebody who, not just in relation to his role in not just canon's history, but the history of ninja movies, but just in martial arts. He's one of the biggest names uh, out there. Just one of these great, like great tournament fighters that <laughs> you, you read about him in all these old magazines. You're like, holy crap, this guy was the biggest bat, like biggest badass. And also uh, took Priscilla from Elvis. <laughs> oh, all right. <laughs> so that's, that's, that's a side of your story. That was one of the things is you can, he would do the interview, but, long as you didn't as long as I didn't bring up Elvis didn't ask about Elvis I think that was something that <laughs> when you have some sort of like role in the Elvis story or I'm sort sure it's the same with the Beatles or the Rolling Stones oh yeah top lot like those top level pop culture everything those artists that everything else even like your own like amazing career people just want to come after you to get like parts from this little tiny party right life. a little blip of you know some bigger yeah i imagine <laughs> that's very frustrating yeah but mike 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 stone was an incredible interview and i got some great information from him just how he how he came to canon with the idea for ninja movies and and, he, and he's a real deal martial artist right like he's a, yeah. a serious accomplished guy just like someone you'll cover in volume three uh frank do right <laughs> yeah Ooh. i would that's a that's a teaser yeah. joke for the next time you come on the show <laughs> i yeah yeah we'll talk about frank dukes uh in a few yeah. years <laughs> but um yeah he's uh, for oh steve lambert is another one he was the guy oh, okay. who he's a very fun interview in there but he's a stunt coordinator and he did a lot of pretty much all of all of canon's ninja movies for like a good chunk of time and it's fun to watch these movies because he does most of the stunts himself. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's one of the reasons he says in the, in the interview that Canon liked him because they got a stunt coordinator, but they also got, you know, 10 stuntmen for the price of him because he would just do one stunt and change the costume, do another stunt. And it's very funny now Again, I, I I saw I had the opportunity to see Ninja Three at the Mahoning Drive-In, and that was a fun movie to watch. I'd never seen it with a gigantic crowd on a big screen, but when it's a movie you've seen, now I've seen I don't know how many 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 times. But when I watch it now, you can recognize where it's Steve Lambert, this one particular stunt double. Oh, okay. And the first ten minutes of that movie, he plays like a ninja, a cop, a ninja, a cop. Like he's like, they, every shot he's like getting 
it's just him like jumping a car, falling out of a helicopter, flying the helicopter, or, like jumping as a ninja, climbing a thing as a ninja. It's 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 very funny to watch that because but again it it gives you an idea of like how underappreciated stunt people are i was just I think, thinking that i think maybe steve, the most underappreciated part of hollywood i think i think, think steve lambert and ninja 3 is a reason like if they did not create a oscar for <laughs> stunt work <laughs> stunt coordination yeah. just his because how much of that movie is just him <laughs> and it's yeah. so hard because and it's it blends so well you never notice unless you're really looking for it I was going to say, that's impressive that you've, that you've seen these movies so many times that you can identify stu- costumed stunt people. <laughs> uh, that, that's how I know you're a true film historian. <laughs> Staying on the, the American Ninja series, so are these movies still on the early end? Well, this first movie, I should say. Is this first movie still on the early end of the ninja craze of the 80s that got started with Canon's original ninja trilogy? Or is this point it at, like, at mainstream? You know, I, I remember you, you made a note that Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, you know, added to this. You know, where does this series fall in the timeline of, like, the ninja craze of the 80s? Well... <sighs> Somebody who's a who has a great insight into this and kind of lived through the era. I was seeing all these things on video a little bit later. Okay, yeah. But uh, there's a great website. I another person who whose work I really admire and is really the the resource for like ninja, like forbidden ninja knowledge is yeah. Keith, Keith Rainville. He writes a site for he he has a site called Vintage Ninja, and it talks really about it looks at the entire pop, what ninjas became in pop culture through the eighties and through the nineties and not just in Western culture, but he gets, he gets, he writes a lot about Eastern where what ninjas were like in Japanese things and, and things like anime and manga and things like that, where is beyond what I even am familiar with, but he recently, well, he had, it was an older article he wrote, but he talks about seeing See, going to see American Ninja in the theater, and it was the first time Ninja started to feel silly. <laughs> oh, because okay. he loved it. I mean, it's <laughs> it's it's one of those things. It's it's got great ninja action. Yeah, but you've also got it. Suddenly gets into the. He points out like because he talked his he talked some of his friends into coming to see it with him. He was like the guy that him and his buddy yeah. were in, or him and his brother. I can't remember which word, but we're super into ninjas and getting all their friends to go with them and seeing it and them liking things about it. But then their friends kind of like making fun of the color coded like ninjas at, that are like training and there's yellow ones, red ones, orange ones. And yeah, so it's, it's kind of, it, it would be kind of still peak there. It was before it got in all cartoon, like got all cartoony and things. This, right. was, so this would have been when there's still lots of ninja magazines on newsstands and, and things like that. But I think he described it as like the moment where it was beginning to jump the shark or at least like okay. the motorcycle was like coming around and like lining up at the ramp. It probably jumped, oh, okay. the shark. probably Ninja 2, Amer- uh, American Ninja 2 would have been like when like Fonzie's motorcycle was hitting the top of the ramp there. Yeah, but interesting yeah. that he says that one and not Ninja Three: The Domination. It's true. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I don't recall what his exact words were on that. But, it's a great, it's a great piece. It's something that's, um, it's one of those essays that is up on his website, and you can read. And it's, I, I'll, I I'll find the link to that, and I'll, I'll, I'll find the link to that, and I'll, I'll include it. And I will say, despite what I just said, I, I get what you're saying that because I, I watched american ninja i watched ninja 3 like i i i can't put it into words but i follow that logic mm-hmm. no. yeah yeah it's i think the absence of shokasugi too is like where the a little bit of legitimacy i still think like yeah. the most authentic ninja we ever got on screen but well, i'm probably miss, miss saying that but at least in that phase of like ninja movies Oh yeah, no, I think that guy carries a ton of credibility. Yeah, yeah, that's a good, another good um, uh, uh, identifier there. Okay, so 
I love uh, American you... Ninja. I will say that. Like, I love, I love yeah. those movies, and that's those. Those are what still like I attach to them on video. And but yeah, coming at it a little bit older, and it, somebody who might have lived through that whole sort of Ninja explosion, watched it happen live. I can see where his <laughs> his yeah. opinion came from. Sure, for sure. Do you uh, do you consider American Ninja to be Canon's signature series, or do you think that's that would be something else, or do you not really subscribe, you know, prescribe something like that to a phrase uh, like that? I think that's fair. Yeah, I think that's fair. At least one of the flagship series. You gotta, you, yeah. you'd have to have Delta Force up in there. <laughs> yeah, oh yeah, as well course. if you were looking at a franchise that people. Yeah, maybe Death Wish, but yeah, I mean, there's yeah, they, they seem to invest a lot of capital, I mean, you know, over the course of five movies, uh, and unlike Death Wish, that was their in-house creation, right, you know? If you want to kind of see Canon's decline, <laughs> oh, okay. you can watch it live, hap- or you can watch it happen if you watch all of the American <laughs> Ninjas, hap- because the budget's most canon most most franchises if you were a studio making a making if a, a, a franchise that you had a successful launch and could support sequels you would pump more movie and pump more money into each successive movie try to make it bigger more bombastic bombastic oh, killing words tonight but you yeah, would you just <laughs> <laughs> build upon that you can usually see that trajectory as each sequel gets crazier when it comes to a right a franchise, especially in the 80s. Canon, rather than spend more each time, they would spend less and see if they could squeeze more money out of a lesser budget. So American Ninja 2, even, it goes from being shot in the Philippines with larger budget. American Ninja, a lot of the same, a lot of the crew that worked on American Ninja worked on Apocalypse Now, which is amazing because Coppola got there and they had all these people they trained. So a lot of the same crew that works on American Ninja. So of course, shooting a much lower budget action movie, they're going to do a great job. Yeah. But then they go and they move to South Africa for the second one. And then they, then they don't even bother bringing the American crew over for later ones. And yeah, that's a good point. And that is, yeah, that is kind of a bummer. <laughs> it's just that is kind of sad because it is hard to think of like what is a canon sequel. I guess maybe the only one I can think of is Death Wish Three, Death Wish Four. Like those seem to you know surpass Death Wish Two at least as far as you know entertainment value goes. But true, yeah, yeah, you're right. There's uh, the sequels do tend to trend downwards in the production value. Death Wish they do build, they do build, but the American Ninja, yeah, canon was in worse and worse mm. financial straits and. I do think the, fortunately, one of the per- people that suffered from it was Michael Dudikoff. That's, yeah. if you kind of look, they have this somebody who was really a homegrown star and somebody who in-house, had they fostered it and like thought out a plan for him a little better, could have had a bigger star. But you look at his movies and after American Ninja and Avenging Force, yeah, each one costs canon less and less money they put into, and so <laughs> it's just the movies you can you can watch the movies shrink around Michael Dudikoff in in the canon films to where <laughs> they're costing nothing near the end. That was my conversation with Austin Trunick, the author of the Canon Film Guide Volume Two. Part two of this conversation will be posted later this week. And in that interview, we will cover Runaway Train, which is largely considered to be canon's best film. We will talk about all of the various controversies that surround the Chuck Norris movie, The Delta Force. We'll talk about how canon convinced Sylvester Stallone to work with them in the late 80s. And we'll also cover a few of Austin's personal favorites, as well as a tease of what's coming in Volume 3. I need to thank Austin for being such a fantastic guest again I hope it's clear that I believe in every project I feature on this podcast, but these books in particular are personal favorites. So I really recommend that you check them out, get yourself a copy of either of these books, or at the very least, find Austin on social media and learn a little bit more there. You can find him as The Canon Film Guide on Facebook and at Canon Film Guide on Twitter. And if you already own either of these books, 
If you're so inclined, you can reach out to Austin on social media and he will happily mail you a signed book plate sticker that you can put on the inside cover. So with that, keep an eye out for part two and thanks for watching. Hey, thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please remember the big four things you can do to support this show that don't cost a dime. Number one, listen to the show. If you're hearing this now, that means you did this part already. Thank you. There is an infinite amount of content out there, so you choosing to spend some time listening to this show means a great deal to me. Number two, if you like what we did here, please recommend this show to family, friends, or anyone you know who's looking for a podcast, particularly about music. Share our links in Facebook groups, subreddits, and recommendation threads. Whatever you can do is highly appreciated on my end. Number three, find us on social media. Follow us on Twitter at PlayThatPodcast. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash playthatpodcast. And subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash C slash playthatrockandroll. Lots of great material like photos and vlogs on all three platforms. As Play That Rock and Roll is very much meant to be a content hub as well as a podcast. And finally, the big ask. Number four. Please give us a five-star rating and a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I know this part is a hassle, but it really does help the show a great deal. Not just because it affects the algorithm, but also because it gives me something I can point to when pitching this show to potential guests. The more social media followers and positive ratings the show has, the better chance I have for booking high-profile guests for interviews. So if you take a moment to give us even just a five-star rating, you are actively giving us a tool to do bigger and better things here. But whatever the case, I appreciate any and all efforts you take to support us here at Play That Rock and Roll. Be sure to join us next time for more great stories and music from the world of classic rock.